Good evening. On Wednesday of this week, December 14th, the Friends of the Book Parts Press will have its annual Christmas party. This will start at about 6 o'clock and will consist of an interesting collection of films and videotapes that we've been gathering in as usual for previewing, for potential purchase, and for showing to groups like you when they are too unspeakable even for us to purchase, since we think of ourselves as having an exhaustive collection in this area. Uh, there is one that has just come in, which I think you will find, if you're here on Wednesday, genuinely unspeakable. Very interesting indeed. Once. And that completes the Friends of the Book Arts Press Lecture Series for this semester. The series for next semester will be considerably busier. There'll be about between 15 and 20 lecturers coming in between now and the beginning of May. And the list is one, I think, which will amuse you. I hope so in any event. Our speaker this evening is Mr. Roger Stoddard from the Houghton Library at Harvard University. And I should say that the brochure advertising the 20 courses we're offering in 1984 in Rare Book School is at the printer and will be back from the printer on Friday and will be sent out to the Friends of the Book Arts Press a day or two thereafter. There'll be copies around here next week. This is a considerable expansion, as you know, over what we offered last summer. And one of the strengths of that expansion is none other than Roger Stoddard himself, who will be teaching a course for Rare Book School in Rare Book Collection Development. It seemed only appropriate, in view of uh, this addition and strengthening, to provide Mr. Stoddard with a gift at the introduction, as an introduction to his lecture. Mr. Stoddard, who will now model the T-shirt. <laughs> One of the things I envy most about Terry Bellinger is his opportunity to influence librarians while they are learning and before they are practicing. He gets to introduce them to the important things, the organization of knowledge, the paths of study, all the parts of the book, and all the facets it can offer to the educated reader. His Book Arts Press promises to inform its friends all about rare books and manuscripts and related subjects including what you have suspected from the title of my paper, Bibliography. Thank you, Terry Bellinger, for sharing your opportunity and for letting me get into your act. Yes, I'm a bibliographer, but in order to come here and explain what made me that way, what books have done to me, I've had to leave behind my bundles of search slips annotated with citations and leads to the books I'm seeking, folders of notes on books to see or look for at this library or that, including Columbia, 
notebooks full of worksheets recording the details of copies I've seen, copies of my own work annotated with additions and revisions, my steel centimeter rule, this week's stack of books awaiting description, my own collections of books and broadsides that might make bibliographies someday, files of projects abandoned or potential all left behind except my brand new emoscope, which I thought I'd bring along for you to look at afterward. Also, I have a few examples of my work, published and unpublished, which I'd thought I'd read for you just to get things started. Folio and all supplied, one in eight, two in six, three hyphen four in ten, five in eight, six hyphen sixteen in ten, seventeen in eight. All those gatherings in tens, quinternions, suggest that the book is made of paper instead of the thicker vellum, but whether we are discussing a printed book or a manuscript one would be hard to tell from the collation. But in either case, it probably comes from the 15th century, you will think. It is printed, like the rest of my examples, Biblia Aurea by Antonius de Rampagolis, printed at Ulm by Johann Zeiner in 1476, one of those indexes to the scriptures so useful to the preacher. My library acquired the book a few months ago when we discovered a copy with such vivid blind impressions of types from an old font and of clusters of undistributed types from the book itself, showing at the bottom of short pages and beside clusters of short lines that it can be used on exhibition to demonstrate to students the principle of bearers. Type high material masked from being inked, locked up in the form to equalize the pressure of the platen. Twelve mo, small a tilde in eight, small e tilde in four, capital A hyphen capital E in 8.4, paren plus or minus capital E two, capital F capital Q in 4.8, if the tildes over the small letters suggest France to you, and a 12mo in eights and fours the 18th century, you are absolutely right. The book is a study of smallpox by the materialist philosopher Julien Offre de la Metrie, printed at Paris in 1740. The cancel? In the first state, la Metrie invites you to laugh at Francois Quesnay the physician and physiocrat, who becomes in the second state, Monsieur Asterisk, Asterisk, Asterisk. Capital A hyphen capital C in eight, paren dollar sign four plus one leaf paren close, capital D in six. A crazy American book of the 19th century, where else will you find simple nines or repeating series of 621 or 4212 
or sixes with an inserted bifolium followed by a singleton. This one is the Brandiad, verses by one Peter Aorist, Boston, 189. Square bracket one hyphen 23, square bracket close in eight, signed bracketed one in 11, two hyphen 21 in eight, bracketed 22 in 13. You suspect printing plates, U.S., late 19th century, from the disagreement between signing and makeup because you know that plate making and printing were separate crafts so that the casting in one shop did not always fit the presses in the other. The book is An Unofficial Patriot by Helen H. Gardiner, published in Boston in 1894, source of James Hearn's celebrated realistic drama, The Reverend Griffith Gaunt. But perhaps there are other ways of talking about bibliography. Shall we consider a quotation from the king of bibliographers, Jacques-Charles Brunet? At the age of 80, 58 years after the publication of his first bibliography, Brunet reflected on the succeeding revised editions in the fifth and final one of his masterwork, Manual for the Bookseller and Book Collector. Fidel, faithful, a nos habitudes laborieuses to our laborious habits, et sans autre but, and without another goal, que de satisfaire notre propre curiosité, than to satisfy our own curiosity. Nous continuons avec une nouvelle ardeur, we did continue with a new ardor, no recherche bibliographique, our bibliographical researches. Or better, perhaps, steadfast in our hard-working ways and with no object but the satisfaction of our own curiosity, we did carry on with fresh ardor our bibliographical inquiries. Steadfast in our hard-working ways and with no object but the satisfaction of our own curiosity, we did carry on with fresh ardor our bibliographical inquiries. What are the ways of bibliography? If we look into it, bibliography meant a writing or a copying of books until the 18th century when the French turned its meaning to a writing about books in their material, corporeal sense. In the Britannica, 1910, Alfred W. Pollard, librarian, bibliographer, father of STCs, amplifies the definition. A bibliographer studies books to discover their origin, examines copies to find out if they are perfect and in original state, and watches for variants of the press, all with the object of publishing a standard description. Never mind the uses of that description, for the time being we're just satisfying our curiosity. The Oxford English Dictionary stresses a key word here, cause of pain and trouble. Bibliography is the systematic 
description, and history of books, their authorship, printing, publication, editions, etc. Both Pollard and OED send us back to that bumbling bibliographer, the Reverend Thomas Frognall Dibden, as the earliest English authority for their definition. It is in the preface to the first volume, 1814, of his catalog of Earl Spencer's Incunabula, Bibliotheca Spenceriana, that Dibdin promises he has collated every copy by signatures and that he provides an honest description of the condition of each, concluding, the study of bibliography in this country is perhaps in its infancy, but it is daily acquiring strength and extension. Dibdin may be the only practitioner who was able to strengthen and extend his subject while publishing grotesquely inaccurate work. That word system deserves some attention. You should know that there is a pure golden moment of creation before the start of any bibliographical work. Pure before, because it comes before the data, its conflicts and its gaps, before error, yours and others, before editors, printers and reviewers. If you could recover the work of that author or publisher, if you could augment that bibliography, if you could construct a new bibliography, if you could prove a thesis by examples, then what complement of data would you want to be able to report? How would you want to arrange it and index it? What system would encourage the books to tell their stories? Before you know it, you have created a little world all your own out of title pages and imprints, collations and watermarks, bindings and copyrights, ornaments and illustrations, authors and annotations, details and details, all woven and interwoven into a system. You will arrange and rearrange its parts, enjoying yourself in an ideal bibliographical world that will be destroyed and refashioned as you expose your plan to colleagues, to the facts, and to editors. It will never be the same again, but the practical result could never come into being without those initial, highly charged, creative moments that set it going. Bibliography is systematic in all its parts. The theme of work, for instance, whether it be Aldous as a printer or Faulkner as an author, sets the limits of inclusion and exclusion, then the practical results of 16th century Venetian bookmaking or 20th century New York bookmaking describe the complement of data to be included. Like so much systematic work, bibliography is modular. It is built up out of entries, but its integrity comes not from the consistency of its parts, their systematization, but from its completeness, the wholeness of the work. Bibliographical work may be flawed by stupidity or by lapses in systematic thought or work, but the most serious flaw, the deadliest and noblest, is incompleteness. Without the integrating authority of completeness, bibliography would be just an accumulation of data, useful but formless, suggestive but not authoritative. Bibliography, you see, is a razor that separates the genuine from the copy, 
the authentic from the original, the counterfeit from the genuine. It is the book sister of those canonical studies that establish the complete work of an artist or composer. The goal of completeness affects not only the whole work but all its parts. The bibliographer tries to tell the complete story of each book by assembling a mosaic from elements in many different copies. This book is composed of the following parts, he will say, and he is responsible for the genuineness and interrelations of all those parts in all those copies. The other day, for example, I watched W.H. Bond exposed to his bibliography class the Harvard copies of Phineas Fletcher's allegory, The Purple Island, 1633, reconstructing from several defective or misbound copies the standard for that book. The goddess of bibliography encourages in her practitioners an abiding curiosity to find things out, as illustrated in two personal characteristics. First, an impulse to straighten things out by finding patterns and sequences in a broad collection of data. Anyone who has watched Kitsi Panzer arranging in rows and columns on her office floor dozens of slips representing variant forms of the English yearbooks will see what I am driving at. Or if you have seen Brunet's attempt to provide guidance to the printed books of ours made in France about 1500, the general rule with them is, if you think your copy is identical with another, you're not looking closely enough. A brief encounter with them will illustrate for you the axiom, most manuscripts are copies, but most printed books are unique. <laughs> Second is a visceral need to view and handle books day by day and week by week. Not just copies of the same book, but different books of all sorts. That is how you get your bearings for dating undated books, localizing unsigned books, and detecting facsimiles and copies made up of parts of various ones. And that is why so many bibliographers come from the book trade or from libraries, those places where the books are. There are many reasons for looking at lots of books, but the bibliographer's reason is the understanding of books. Several months ago, I made some careless remarks about the physiology of books, their parts and how they fit together, building up to some really foolhardy statements about the morphology of books, how physique and genre and nationality and period fit together, books as an analytical tool in the comparative analysis of cultures. That is the way of bibliography. Steadfast in our hard-working ways. Just what is the hard work that Brunet knew so well. Toward what is it directed? First of all, bibliography, like all scholarship, does not always advance by logical cumulative steps. So one has to make up sometimes for the lack of studies that could support one's own. C. William Miller deplored the fact that he had to produce a study of the sources of printing paper 
before he could complete his bibliography of Benjamin Franklin's Philadelphia printing. When I began my own studies of early American plays and verse, I did not know that I would have to read in their raw form all the surviving U.S. copyright entries from 1790 through 1830. So sometimes the bibliographer must assume a burden that he wishes someone else had already carried into print. Next comes the collection of titles and authors and editions. A book must be listed before it can be found, a silly but pernicious fact. One of the best things a bibliographer does is to get into print the first record of a book, like the first description of a species published by a scientist. Access to raw material in the book trade, to unprocessed books in libraries, and to books in out-of-the-way libraries will give the bibliographer his best chance to discover unrecorded items. Combine the list-before-discovery syndrome with short-form and short-title cataloging practice and with a possible disregard of the bibliographer's interests on the part of catalogers and other bibliographers, and you will see why the bibliographer must throw his net wide rather than short, admitting that he will scan many more entries in catalogs and bibliographies than fit his program, and that he will examine many more books than he can use. Brunet's sources were book sale catalogs. His manual is a kind of highly refined index of European book auction records. Our resource for two generations has been the National Union catalog, first in card, then in book form. Now we have databases, some of which allow for searches, a new luxury for the bibliography, bibliographer when he is collecting titles. Next comes the library tour, as the bibliographer goes to work in the libraries that hold the books he needs. With fists full of work slips or with sheets sorted out by his word processor, he amplifies and corrects his file as he gathers shelf marks, often working at night when the special collections that hold his books are closed. In some libraries, he will be using fiche and terminals, but antiquarian bibliographers will be using antique card catalogs for the duration, it seems, callousing their fingers and straining their forearms, peering into packed trays to read notes of second copies at the bottom of the cards. If one is resourceful, one can find books that have eluded others by trying variant forms of author and title, vernacular and Latin forms of Renaissance names, all the old tricks of library acquisitions searching. A bibliographer is a real pain at the circulation desk. On a good day, good for him, not for the librarians, he works through 50 or 60 books, submitting new slips day, day after day for the books that haven't shown up. It must be dismaying for the librarians to watch him finish with some books in a minute or less. How would they know that he was seeking a binding, a picture, or ads not present in their copy, or that he was checking the book to see if he needed it or not? To keep up the momentum, he fills out call slips in advance or late at night when libraries are closed. At the British Library, he stockpiles books at more than one location. This bibliographer is totally baffled by the slow ways of the Bibliothèque Nationale. 
how can a large volume of serious work be done there? Finally, the bibliographer gets to his books as his streams of call slips bring piles of them to his reading room desk. The first description of each book will require time and effort, and the bibliographer will proofread his description before returning the book. Eventually, if he is fortunate, he will test that description many times as he compares other copies with it in each detail. The colophon and dropped or caption title and the title page are the most serious elements of a book to a bibliographer. The amount of information they convey sets books apart from and ahead of all other forms of historical evidence. And those who work with books are quite rightly obsessed with them. You will recall that when Jacob Blank lectured on bibliography, he didn't get beyond the title page. Italians call their bibliomaniacs frontispiziani, title pagers. Never mind that. The title page controls the arrangement and indexing of books. Its transcription accurately but simply is the beginning of bibliography. Quasi-facsimile transcriptions, that is, the indication of capitals, lowercase, Roman, italic, and black letter, letter types, and the marking of the end of each line may help the learned to picture the title page from a transcription, but it has not proven to be a generally useful discriminant for variance for the bibliographer, and it strains the human capacity for accuracy. In the title pages, faults in inking or make-ready will render colons as points and semicolons as commas in some copies, but problems of that sort merely pique the bibliographer's concentration and quicken his desire for accuracy. As he begins to collate the book by signatures, the bibliographer had better get the title leaf right, for if that leaf is a singleton, not conjugate with another leaf in the book, then it is a separate entity from the rest of the book, and it takes away from the book everything it says, date, publisher, city, perhaps even author and title. The bibliographer has a problem, something to explain. How did that title leaf get on the sheets of the book? What other title leaves go with the sheets? And how do the variant title leaves fit together to explain the story of those sheets? Collating books by paging, recording faults, and collating books by signatures, recording press figures, faults, and specially signed cancels, gives the bibliographer an understanding of the structure of a book that is akin only to a mechanic's knowledge of engines or an anatomist's of the human body. Counting and keeping track, watching for the stitch in the middle of each gathering that joins it to the cord or tape across the back, verifying with chain lines and watermarks in the leaves what drudgery to obtain the knowledge of how things work. A, two, three, four, five, six, stitch, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. B, two, three, four, five, six, stitch, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Or A, two, three, 
four stitch, five, six, seven, eight, B, two, three, four stitch, five, six, seven, eight. Each format has its rhythm. Cap A, two stitch, three, four, small A stitch, two. Cap B, two stitch, three, four, small B stitch, two. But rhythms sometimes broken. A, two, three, four, five, cancel. Or M, two, stitch, three, four, made up copy. How can those leaves be conjugate if the chain lines don't match up? How can there be two watermarks in that signature? Where is the leaf that's missing from the signature? Not under the end paper. Printers and binders don't work for the comfort of bibliographers, you know. Then on to the inserted illustrations, advertisements, errata leaves, binders leaves, which belong to the book and which do not. The edges of the leaves, gilt, stained, sprinkled, or plain. The binding, original, later, the publishers. What about provenance and annotations? Will they be useful to record? Perhaps not for this purpose. Each part of the book plays its role in opening and closing, sale and shelving, reading and display, and offers its evidence for description, measurement, and comparison. As copy after copy is compared against the draft description, new data conforms with the draft and stabilizes it, or clashes with the draft and destroys it. New evidence, new explanations. The bibliographer who has gained his first experience with modern books, about which much remains inexplicable, will take his disbelief with him to books of earlier periods, while the bibliographer who has begun his training with early books, about which much can be explained, will take his faith to later periods. You may expect objective reports from the former and confident explanations from the latter. Finally, the evidence is collected and the editing begins. It is possible to publish descriptions of books that are factually correct but unintelligible to readers. Jacob Blank taught by example a standard that is worth pondering. Address your description to a person who has a copy of the book in hand, talk straight, show him where his copy fits in. So draft and redraft descriptions until the books tell their stories. Exasperating work, but be encouraged by what Mallarmé says about all this. Remember when he is thinking about the book of books that will be a hymn of joyful harmony, like a pure concord assembled on some luminous occasion unifying everything, he tells us that the gatherings of a book are like the folded wings of birds ready for flight. And he goes on, were it not for the falling back of the leaf which conceals its underside, the shadow dispersed in black types would not rise to the surface like breaking a secret when we spread the leaves apart as we lift our finger.
we did carry on with fresh ardor our bibliographical inquiries, so could Brunet summarize his life, but after his death on November 14, 1867, the strongest efforts of the best bibliographical minds of France failed to keep the manual going. It remains frozen at the fifth edition Brunet's tomb, better cared for than his grave now that the curators of the Bibliothèque Nationale have taken away the funds for its upkeep. Oh, the fates of bibliographers, the fate of bibliography. Who needs it? Who will support it? Who wants it anyway? Not students, not teachers, not scholars, not editors, not libraries, not universities, not foundations, not the man in the street, not governments. Have I left anyone out? What about the book collector, you ask? Doesn't he need bibliography? Yes, he wants to know what to buy. And the bookseller? Yes, he wants to know what to sell and how to price it. But you know what they do once they are told the first of a firstness, paradise lost, pickwick or raven and tales. They conspire together, collector and bookseller, in the destruction of historical evidence in order to confect from various sources copies that bristle with all the correct points. Don't waste your bibliography on them. Did you ever know a student who needed bibliography? Students read the textbooks and paperback editions their teachers confect. Teachers are too busy with ideas to bother with the collector's fine points. Scholars work by magical insights, dipping into data here and there to come up with their connections, explanations, formulations. Editors will simplify their texts no matter what. Libraries, universities, and governments overwhelmed by books need bibliographical control, the natural enemy of bibliographical analysis. The man in the street reads sports results, war news, and other pornography. Remember the old New England expression, reading rots the brain. Who would notice if all the bibliographies in the whole world reached Fahrenheit 451 simultaneously? taking all the bibliographical manuals and bibliographers with them into Bradburian oblivion. Isn't that the best solution? Wouldn't everyone be better off then, even the bibliographers so happily released in the purifying flames of their own collations? The bibliographer... Mercurius Bibliographicus, you see, is the messenger with the bad news. He begins, things are not what they seem. 
Get that person out of here, the editors scream. Perhaps that's Tom Tenzel. He goes on. Those Hitler diaries are a fake, tearing them out of the hands of the man in the street. Those duplicates are duplicitous, librarian. They are different editions and may not be discarded. Your single record for them falsifies the facts. You picked the wrong source for your edition, editor. Besides, there is no intellectual basis for your editing. Scholar, there were three editions where you say one and one edition where you say three. You haven't learned how the book trade work. Your argument is flawed. Teacher, your cobbled yarns of books and printers are false. Your students cheated. Just a little bibliography student and then you might master your subject. Bad news, bad news. Away with that dark goddess who requires her followers to complicate history and glorify objects. Who needs completeness and an impossible standard of accuracy? Bibliography has no domicile, no safe house in library or university. Mercurius Bibliographicus, go back where you came from nowhere. With no object but the satisfaction of our own curiosity, what is the basis for all humane studies? You ask the darndest questions we tell our children, hoping that the freshness of their first response to things may last throughout their lives. If they can only hold their curiosity, the fresh ardor of it, then they will preserve a dimension in their thought that will nourish their whole life. Among the objects of our curiosity, the noblest is man himself in his spirituality, but do not books hold a high rank since they can reveal so much about him? And how can books tell their whole story without their bibliography? Material objects like books do not today obsess most scholars as they do historians of art or scientists of natural history, but a regimen for working with book documentation will overtake all scholars so that the future student of Marguerite Yersnar though he or she may lack the passion of a Mallarmé, will be just as concerned with the collation, makeup, and production of 20th century books as today's student of Aquinas or Augustine with those of medieval times. So, brothers and sisters of the book, shall we exercise our curiosity? I yearn to read your bibliographies, your articles, your notes, your book reviews laden with addenda. I hanker after your collations, your annotations, your sequences, your analyses. Let's get to work. Let's get them published. Let's get a look at them. Don't, didn't you ever want to study books directly, find out about them firsthand, learn how they're put together, see what that tells you? Get yourself Macaro's introduction to bibliography or Gaskell's new one, Teach yourself, get some help, go to work, bring life to a book, bring a book to life, reconstruct its story, publish what you find. That bibliography you use, the one that's out of date, buy a copy, mark it up, seek out editions, publish. 
that author you like, no matter what the subject, science, literature, history, the one whose writings have never been listed, publish a checklist, then maybe a bibliography. That place that interests you, the one whose native printing can't be studied for lack of a list, collect the imprints, collect the book trade biographies, publish. That printer or publisher whose imprints carried a movement, political, artistic, literary, scientific, make a list, find the books, publish. That craftsman, binder, artist, designer, or the school, dig out the books, annotate the artwork, publish. That subject, the one that can't be studied without a bibliography, do it up, publish. That study of the influence of this on that, cross-cultural or intracultural, the one that always intrigued you, locate the books, publish. Curiosity breeds curiosity. Did you ever get an idea from a book? Did you ever get a bibliographical idea from a bibliography? Did you ever get an idea from a bibliography? Avenge bibliography by spreading curiosity about books wherever and whenever you can. Have you hugged a bibliographer today? Bury them with bibliography. Bibliography is its own revenge upon curiosity's enemy, ignorance. So, there she is, the goddess of bibliography, scuzzy but voluptuous, casting off her collations, publishing her entries, beckoning us to follow. Keep your eye on her. Come along. Let's go. Let's bibliographize. Well, I really must leave you now and repossess my bundles of search slips annotated, folders of notes on books to see, notebooks full of worksheets, my centimeter rule this week's stack of books, my own accumulations of books, files of projects. As a teenager, you see, I learned from Lawrence Roth about Brunet's manual, a bibliography I have used since then nearly every week of my life. There is more than one way to repay such a gift, and I thank you for indulging me in this one.